And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Candace Taylor to the program today. Candace is a visual artist, photographer, and writer. Her previous books are Counterculture, The American Coffee Shop Waitress, and The Moon Route 66 Handbook. Today we'll be talking about her latest book, Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America, which is published by Abrams Press. Candace, with your books on Route 66 and coffee shop waitresses, you've had an interest in travel and hospitality for a while, haven't you? I have. I've been a travel writer for over 20 years, and it was really that I became more of a cultural documentarian once I started looking at diner waitresses because I was really interested in a subculture beyond just the interviews. I was in grad school getting my master's degree in visual criticism. So there was also a lot of theory and things that I was studying that was well beyond just what you would imagine if you go into a diner and you interview a diner waitress. There were all these other deeper layers that I was exploring. And so then it became more than just being a travel writer and more of a cultural documentarian. I'll have to say I haven't heard of visual criticism as a a field of study before. That's a fancy liberal arts degree. (laughs) But actually it was – I got my master's in 2002 at the California College of the Arts in San Francisco. And it was actually the first visual and critical studies program because there were the art theory and criticism programs that were coming out of all the major schools. But those were – heavily reliant on theory, but also a lot of jargon. So you would write about these deep, meaningful things, but in these ways that most people couldn't understand or would care to read because Mm -hmm. it was so convoluted. So visual criticism was the first of its kind and where it took all of the same rigorous search of all these different layers of theory and understanding why and when and how something operates in society or, you know, and what effect that has. And then bringing in race and class and all these other layers, it really taught me how to think. And again, then there were all of these visual and critical studies programs that kind of branched out from that. And so that apparently is a more popular form of study right now in colleges. Just last night, I was watching old television commercials from 1970. And there was like a two-minute commercial from the New York Times. I can't remember her name. But it was a, a woman writing for the Times who won the first Pulitzer Prize in criticism. Oh wow! In in wow. 1970 or so, wow. and so it was just amazing that it was such a long commercial dedicated to a columnist who was a Pulitzer for criticism. Wow, that's fascinating. When did the idea to write about the Green Books come to you? I was writing the book about Route 66, and I'd been commissioned to do that project. That was the only project of mine that. They reached out to me. It was a moon travel guide. I'd never written a travel guide before. I needed the money, so I decided to do it. And they approached me because I had done all this work on the diner waitresses, and I had interviewed diner waitresses on Route 66. So I was deep into this research, realized when I had already signed all the contracts, everything was happening. I had very little time to write it and even less money because I had to cover all my travel, that the advance didn't even cover that. So I was kind of kicking myself, thinking, why did I agree to do this? And when I was looking at all these other books that had been written about Route 66, I noticed that, you know, 98% of them were this, you know, us go back to this great old, good old days that were, you know, full of just sunshine, and we just jump in our Airstream trailer, and it's that nuclear family, and they were all white, and Getting their kicks. Getting their kicks on Route 66. And I thought, how is this, you know, where are the black people? (laughs) That was the first question, being black myself. And how did they manage it? Because once I learned about half of the counties along Route 66 were sundown towns, which were all white towns and all white on purpose, and they banned any black people from coming in after 6 p.m. How did black people travel Route 66. And so when I asked that question, I was at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles and they had a green book tucked away in a corner. It was like 2013. I'd never seen it before. I'd never known such a thing existed. And then the light bulb went off and I thought, now it makes sense. This is why I'm writing this book, this travel guide, because I was supposed to find the green book because that's my project. And so ever since then, I've been working on it more than full time. And in the book, you say you ask your stepfather about mm-hmm. the Green Book because he grew up 
in the Jim Crow South here in the Mid-South. What was his experience with the Green Book like? Well, as soon as I saw the Green Book in the Autry Museum, I ran outside and I called my parents in Columbus, Ohio. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And I thought, you know, do you know about this? Have you heard about it? And my mother hadn't. But my stepfather, Ron, remembered. And he said, oh, yeah, there were a few of those back then. I was shocked because he had never really shared his stories of growing up in the Jim Crow South with me. He grew up here in Memphis, Tennessee. And he would often go back to Memphis to visit family and friends. But there were all of these quirky things he would do. Well, I thought they were quirky and just sometimes ridiculous. But now, knowing what I know about this history and after having written this book, I understand those were deep, deep scars of of basic humiliation and fear. I mean, it was trauma. Yeah, like deep scars of trauma. And he'd do things like only drive in the middle of the night on long trips. He'd leave at like 10 at night and I'd be so upset because I'd say, are you trying to kill my mother? (laughs) You know, it's not safe for her. You know, she's trying to stay awake to make sure he's awake. You know, of course, he could have gotten into an accident. And every time I'd say, why are you driving in the middle of the night? He would say, oh, traffic. I just want to beat traffic. I was like, why would you risk your life and other people's lives just for traffic? And I used to get really irritated with him. And now I realize, you know, he was a large, dark-skinned black man. And it was just so much easier for him to be invisible and drive at night. And there are other stories he told me, too, that just really happened after writing this book. You said it took him quite a long time to kind of trust you enough to share those with you. Right. And I don't even think I realized that's what was happening as it was happening. I mean, there were stories like the chauffeur's hat. I opened the book with that. And it was shocking because I was reading about these black people who would have chauffeur's hats in the backseat of their car just to basically, as a ruse, for law enforcement. So if they were pulled over, especially if they had a nicer car than a police officer could afford, they would lie and say, oh, it's, you know, my employer's car. It's not my car. And so I was in the kitchen talking to Ron one day. And I said, do you know about this? I read about this chauffeur's hat and this story tumbles out of his mouth that he's never told me. And it happened to him when he was seven years old, riding up north with his parents. And his father had a nice car, worked for the railroad, and they get pulled over by sheriff and the father pretends he doesn't even know them. Says, you know, looks at his wife and says, she's a maid. I'm driving them home. This is my employer's car. The officer waves them on But it wasn't until that moment that Ron realized why that hat had been hanging in the back seat ever since he could remember. And he saw it in nearly every other black man's car since. So, yeah, things like that that are part of, you know, I guess our history as Americans. It was shocking to me that I'm doing all this research on outside of my family and then realizing, you know, the stories are right there. To think that you have to disavow your family in order to protect them from a potentially racist law enforcement officer is just... Heartbreaking. And later on in the book, you talk about how some people say maybe we should have the Green Book again because obviously there are still so many problems with structural and institutional racism and personal racism that uh, driving while black, of course, is almost an exact analog to what used to happen. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, as I said, I started this in 2013 and when I first started talking about the Green Book, there were people in academia who knew about it. And Calvin Ramsey was working on a project. He was a playwright. He knew about the Green Book. But most people had didn't know, hadn't heard of it. And when I would tell people about it, they'd say, oh, my God, thank God we don't need that anymore. Like, we just, you know. And, of course, this was, you know, when Obama was president. And then as I'm doing the field research and I'm on the road and then I, you know, Charlottesville happens and all these other things have happened and wake of, you know, Trump and his rhetoric. So many people now are, you know, saying, oh, we need a new one for today. And the thing that's complicated, I think, about the Green Book is that it surely solved a problem. It was a logistical problem that you just didn't have any place to stay that was safe. And so it gave you all those options. However, it didn't guarantee that you get there safely because if you had to drive through sundown towns, that was at your own risk and peril. There was no list of sundown towns. There was no black Twitter. I mean, of course, there was word of mouth. But, you know, it was still very, very dangerous. And when you look today, I mean, as I'm driving through Missouri, you know, doing field research, you know, that's when the NAACP 
puts its travel warning for black people in 20, I think it was 2017, when they listed that because it was after the Ferguson report that showed black people are getting pulled over 75% more likely to get pulled over than white people in that state. And in some ways, we have resolved, obviously, the, the laws did change. But the practice of racism and threats against black bodies hasn't. You didn't bring up this point, but I was thinking about how further it happens in that because there's been a lot of discussions about generational wealth recently and that um, since race and class go so tightly together, many African-Americans can't afford the newest cars or even get loans for a newer car and they don't have access to the newer safety features. And if they become injured because they don't have the safety features, medical bankruptcy is all too real in America and there is another assault on generational wealth for African Americans. Yeah, it's on every level. And I think that, you know, the reality of, quote unquote, having our rights on paper doesn't mean anything if we're still in the lowest percentile of every strata of economic development and growth. And, you know, my book, thankfully, even though it's about the Green Book, it looks at the Green Books chronologically, and it shows us how progress was never really in a straight line. We made progress, and then we had huge strides, and then we'd fall back. It's always been more like a pendulum that swings back and forth. It's not really that things just kept getting better, and will keep getting better. And I think that's been the problem with American symbolism around progress and around race. You know, what I was able to do in the book, because I looked at each green book chronologically, I could show where there were specific entitlement programs that were really laid out for white Americans. Whether it was a GI Bill, even though it was supposed to go to everyone, it didn't. Black people were largely shut out of the GI Bill. And that GI Bill was when white soldiers coming back from war could get jobs, get education, and also buy a really inexpensive house because they loosened the mortgage rates around that. But of course, there was redlining. So even if black folks who didn't get the GI Bill money, if they could somehow afford a house for their own, because there were plenty of well-established black-owned businesses that did well. But if they got a home, they could only buy it in a community where the rates were, they would not get a loan or, you know, have trouble accruing any interest on their home because they were not in a neighborhood that was valued. So at every step of the way, there was always a hurdle that black folks, the few who did get over that hurdle, and there are some success stories, and there were a lot of middle-class black people traveling at that time and living in America, arguably maybe more so than there are now, because now we have this excess of people who are you know, really wealthy and then really poor. But all of this started in the 40s when the people who bought those homes with the white folks who could buy those homes, they made so much intergenerational wealth just from that. I mean, from that home to maybe in the 70s and 80s, it's like then they could afford to send their kids to college, which created more opportunity. And so it keeps building on itself over the generations. And we just never got that opportunity. So now, you know, there's a huge disparity. And it's only getting worse because there's some recent charts that I've seen where the basic costs of college, healthcare, housing for middle-class people essentially takes up all their income now. There's nothing else beyond that. that yeah. So they have no ability to participate in stock shares and bonds and such as that and gain wealth that way. No, no. It's I mean, you can see it in black and white. I mean, of course, ta Coates' article that came out in The Atlantic on and reparations, the reparations article was really, I think, eye-opening to a lot of people because you can trace it back. It's not just that it was slavery. There are decisions, intentional decisions that were made to either help white folks that were huge entitlement programs. When they saw white people struggling, the government stepped up and did something about it. And then shut black people out of that story and that opportunity. And yet the idea that we are giving handouts 
to black people. It's just so it's so wrong because there's a lot of white people on food stamps and other welfare programs. But I just think that we've never really been given the true story and the narrative because it's so couched in so much white supremacy and racism. It just seems like when you go to these communities today where these green book sites were located, because 80% of the green book sites were in traditional black neighborhoods. And so when I was in these communities, like the south side of Chicago, where 53 people were shot the weekend I was there, in one weekend, 53 people were shot. If you go to Skid Row in Los Angeles, it looks like something out of Amsterdam on the wire. It's apocalyptic. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And I've, I've lived in major cities most of my life. I've seen a lot of poverty. I've never seen this level. I've never seen people working full-time jobs and still living in homeless shelters. So that reality, you would think it couldn't get that bad that even city governments wouldn't allow it to get to that point where we have tent cities up and down all these streets. To me, is is such a heartbreaking reality, just this callousness around human suffering. I think like most things, when it really starts to affect the majority of the white people, then we'll do something about it. You also see a lot of this comes about because so many people do go to these major metropolitan areas because smaller states have lost a lot of their manufacturing, but also smaller states sometimes are very white supremacist in their orientation. And why would you stay in a state that doesn't want to have you? Yeah, and that's very real. That is very real. And I'm, you know, I got a grant with the National Geographic to really study and look at black social mobility over the last hundred years. And what I'm seeing is, you know, I'm tracing, I'm mapping everything from lynchings to sundown towns, to green book sites, to private prisons today. And I'm seeing that even some of the old sundown towns, say there's one in Illinois where it was white up until the last couple of census reports. And you start seeing black and brown population just creeping up. It's still less than 10%. But when you look closer, that black and brown population are all in their private prisons. And so there's kind of like a prison gerrymandering that's been happening. And so this map is really looking at where did we see that? Because, yeah, most black people, especially during the second wave of the Great Migration, when the Green Book was at its height of publication, that was when you know, they left the South and moved to these big major cities like Detroit and Baltimore and L.A. and Chicago and New York. And seeing what's happened to these communities is not only devastating, I think it's very telling. And it's very much about how we continue to do business in this country. Because when you look at even the more successful communities, like I live in Harlem, which is incredible, and I love living there, but I'm increasingly the minority in my neighborhood. And I'm black because of gentrification. Because of gentrification, and so to me, that's the new form of whether you know when you look at uh, urban renewal and how much it decimated these black communities. Gentrification is our urban renewal of the '60s, right? It's the same that displacement, that callous, just quote unquote, they call it progress, <laughs> but it's progress for oftentimes white folks, and in every situation. If there's somebody who's going to lose, it's going to be black people. There's always a sacrifice. And I think hopefully, you know, I don't know what policies are really going to push this agenda forward enough to really fix the problem in my lifetime. I don't see it. I think we need definitely need to not be making the problem worse. But there's once you get into mass incarceration, it's unreal, I think, what has happened. It's not much of a hyperbole that the recent film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, it's <laughs> getting almost to be too real. Yeah, I lived in San Francisco for years. And again, like I said, that's where I first saw. And that was 15, almost 18 years ago when I saw people then working full-time jobs and living in homeless shelters. And it's even more expensive and out of reach for for anybody to live there who's not making you know, well into six figures. So I think at some point, we've got to have some kind of form of compassion at capitalism. It can't just go unfettered, because it's human nature, the mayors are going to take the developers money, convincing them not to for the greater good. It's just not something most human beings make that choice, no matter what race they are. There's plenty of black mayors that are 
part of this problem as well. So I do think in the spirit of King, I mean, when before he was assassinated, economic justice was that was the he was like, that's the problem. That's what we really have to focus on. And that was his agenda. And I think, you know, if we want to live in the glow of, you know, having a country that changed its laws and made things better and, you know, for black folks, we've got to do the work. And we've got to continue the work that he was doing in a real way. As much as we can talk about the federal government and its refusal to enforce the laws that it passed over the years, especially in the Jim Crow era, it was a government job that allowed Victor Green to have the ability to go forward with the Green Book. But you know what's funny? Because Victor Green was a postal worker and he was based in Harlem. But ironically, it was segregation that allowed the Green Book to flourish because the postal workers' unions were segregated. He somehow was in the white postal workers' union. We don't know how that happened. He had a certain air about him where... He was a good-looking man. He was very dashing, very handsome, very well put together, very tall, and I imagine charming. But he was he was brilliant. He only had a seventh-grade education. But he was brilliant in that he knew that there was a black postal workers' union and it was throughout the country, and black postal workers were usually relegated to their beat was in the black neighborhoods. And so they knew all those black business owners. And so Victor Green solicited them to go and on their work day and just get more, most of these businesses to advertise in his guide. And it was a really ingenious idea because that's how the Green Book within two years spread from Harlem to every state east of the Mississippi River. How did he come up with the idea for the Green Book in the first place? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, there's definitely things that we can assume. He was living with uh, his wife, Alma Duke Green, was an incredible woman. I think she was also a key figure in the success of the Green Book because Victor worked full time as a postal worker. And he was a letter carrier in New Jersey. So he was commuting to New Jersey every day, too. And I think she was holding up a lot of that up until his 50s. Well, he, I think, retires in 52. But he was very active. And I think she helped a lot. And she becomes the editor and the publisher when Victor Green dies in 1960. She's the editor and publisher, actually, in the 59 edition. So they lived with her brother, who was a musician, you know, obviously the musicians had a hard time traveling. There was a Chitlin circuit for a reason. And and so he actually taught lessons in their house. And so a lot of other musicians would come into the house. And so it's probable that there were a lot of, you know, when they were on tour, there was conversations about how challenging it was to find safe places to stay. And then he also had a friend who was Jewish who would travel to the Borscht Belt upstate Westchester County, New York, regularly, and he used his own, like a kosher guide. And Victor Green, you know, probably thought, well, wow, we could use one of those. He was driving his wife Alma to Virginia regularly to see her family in Richmond, Virginia. So we think it was a combination of things. And he was living in Harlem, which most people think after the Harlem Renaissance, it just became this bastion of just beautiful blackness. But that's not what Harlem was in the 30s. There was a big race riot in 1935. First Green Book is published in 1936. So arguably, while Victor Green's working on this Green Book, there's a race riot because half of the places, the establishments on 125th Street wouldn't let black people in them. So there was a lot of segregation even in Harlem at that time. And so that's why the first Green Book is really based on it because he used it for his own neighborhood. Because while oftentimes the North and the West weren't as physically dangerous for African-Americans, it was still very segregated in many ways. Yeah, the lynchings that happened in the South were real. And I love Brian Stevenson's project on lynching. And I read a lot of his material and followed him very closely as I was writing this book. And I think, though, that the South has just gotten such a bad rap in terms of, oh, the South was so racist and just, you know, because they had the signs and people looked down on the South. And, you know, really, to me, the North and the West and the Midwest were more insidious and in some ways more dangerous for black travelers, because at least in the South, there was a sign and you knew it was very clear 
usually if you were in the wrong place, and hopefully you could just find, you know, if you followed where black people were, there were a lot of, there were just a lot more black people in the South. But if you're going west, black people make up less than 1% of the population in some of those states. So you've got that issue. You've got the fact that, again, there are thousands of sundown towns, which was largely a northern and western phenomena. There were over 400 sundown towns in Illinois and only 13 in Mississippi. Learned last year the Constitution of Oregon didn't allow black people to settle in the state. The whole state, right? You know, I mean, so that's very real. And those are things where you just have no idea because you're you're not home. You're in an unfamiliar place. You can easily be in the wrong place, and then it's too late. I'm not saying the South was more dangerous or less dangerous. It was all dangerous, and they were all critical life-altering issues that could happen no matter where you were in this country. And then you look at the North and you see how, you know, there's a chapter about Mr. Moses, you know, who was a uh, developer and designed parks and all these freeways. In New York City. In New York City. And he's literally making the freeways so low that buses can't get to the beach area to shut out, you know, black and brown people. And people are so irritated with that today that the bridges were built, the freeways were built so low, they're dangerous. But to go through all of that is very covert operation. I mean, it's very involved. And if you're willing to go to those lengths to basically discriminate against black people, I'd rather you just put up a sign and just say colored or white. It's like those internal instincts where it's like you you know you're not really welcome, but you can't figure out what it is exactly or why. And I just have a lot of respect for people who just tell the truth. So I feel like, you know, the North and the West and the Midwest was just better at not telling the truth. And that's why redlining was such a big thing, really up there, because that's when they got the banks involved. It became a federal statute. And it was so much easier for them to control and segregate through the banks. But again, they went through this really elaborate system to do it, where it's like they should have just said, we don't want black people here. So, but they didn't. It's awfully easy to think you're not racist if you're not around different people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, most people, you know, for the digital interactive map I'm, I'm creating, you can type in your zip code and see maybe if you were raised in a sundown town and didn't know it. Because a lot of white people thought it was great growing up. I didn't, we didn't have any problems. It's like, well, you didn't have any black people around you. Did you think maybe there was a reason for that? And the story was always, well, either they couldn't afford to live in our neighborhood or they didn't want to live around us, you know, and that's simply just not true. I grew up in a sundown town in northwest Arkansas. Actually, they had reprinted a picture of the old city sign that said, don't really? let the sun set down on you. Northwest Arkansas is part of the Ozarks. It was not a plantation economy up there. I used to joke, maybe it wasn't much of a joke, but you say they were too racist to have slaves. But now the city has had such an influx of Latino immigrants that it's almost 40% Latino now, I think. And What's the name of the town? Springdale, Arkansas. It's the home of Tyson Chicken. Also, the biggest population of Marshall Island residents in the world live now in Springdale, Arkansas. They were settled there after Bikini and had become so radioactive and everything. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, the fact that, do you know where the sign was, the reprint is? Uh, it was in the Springdale News, which is now called, I think, the Morning News of Northwest Arkansas. Does anybody know what happened to that original sign? I uh, couldn't tell you. There is a, a city museum called the Shiloh Museum. That was the original name of the town. And uh, they might have something like that. Well, I spoke with James Lowen, who wrote the books on downtowns and doing this work. He's a white man, which he admits, you know, was probably the reason why he could get so much information when he went into these towns, asking them, you know, where are the signs? Because we know they had signs, but mysteriously, they've all somehow disappeared. And so all these historical societies and libraries in these communities say, oh, you know, we were so ashamed. We just burned everything and we got rid of it. But yeah, we've still haven't found an actual you know, physical sign. Well, it's only about an hour and a half from a place you mentioned in the book, Harrison, Arkansas. People in Arkansas know about the, the history of Harrison, and there's a little town called Zinc nearby where the Klan 
had one of their, their major strongholds at. I don't know if you heard about this case, but back in 1990, there was a, a Klan member who had actually helped run David Duke's 88 presidential campaign. His name was Ralph Forbes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ran for lieutenant governor of Arkansas on the Republican primary and actually defeated an African-American man who was running in, in that same primary. And the Republican Party of the state had to say, do not vote for our candidate. Vote for the Democrat in the fall. It's real. It's very real. And it's still with us. And, you know, like you said, Harrison is notorious for, you know, there's, I think, four or five different hate groups stationed there. Um, and the Posse Comitatus had the hills of northern Arkansas had been there. Gordon Call's anti-government group had been there. The Covenant, the Sword, the Arm of the Lord had had a, a presence up there. It's a, a strange place. To me, what's most interesting is that it's been our Achilles heel, I think, as Americans to just point to, you know, the Ku Klux Klan or say, you know, these really extreme racists are the problem. But when you have people like David Duke that actually get into government and actually are running things and you have the heads of, you know, police departments who have Klan membership and when you have – when there's every almost aspect of, you know, whether they're running banks, you know, they went from boots, they say, to suits with white supremacy – it's that covert. Again, it's the people that you that run the bank that you don't realize, you know, have those real deep roots. I mean, when you have people like Jeff Sessions, you know, running the, the attorney general, I mean, his history is unbelievable in terms of how far the links he went to that were just based in white supremacist belief systems. So, again, if we want to say we live in a free and fair society, you know, we have to really interrogate that reality. And thankfully, I think now people are finally realizing maybe what we've been told isn't the whole truth and that we have to look a little deeper and make sure that we really understand that things are not just – they're not what they seem. And that, again, whether it's gentrification or looking at how we deal with you know the educational system, all of these choices, mass incarceration, obviously, all of those things – it's not just by accident that black folks are getting shafted. It's just not by accident. So I don't want to say there's a big conspiracy, but it's very tailored. If you look at the history of how there's no mistake or wonder about why it happened this way. You can see in the strange incredulousness that never Trump Republicans have saying, I didn't realize that my party was like that. Well, you weren't paying attention at all, were you? Well, that's yeah. I I can't. I have no patience for that. I mean, I feel like again, if it's just say what you mean, just say what you mean. If you can tolerate that kind of rhetoric and try and say that it's something that it's not, it's like a gaslighting situation. I just I have no real patience for it. But and I have more respect when people just are honest about what they really mean. I think there's a lot of opportunity to learn about each other. I think, you know, I was just in Tulsa, Oklahoma doing a book signing and because of the race riot, the massacre that is, you know, the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre is coming up. Most of the audience was white and most of them were very upset that, you know, like we thought we knew what happened and we didn't. We weren't told the truth. And so I don't think it's even a race thing. I think it's a matter of being an American if we want to live under the symbolism that we're this great country that, you know, there's equality, equal justice for all, we've got work to do. Growing up kind of over that way, went to Tulsa a lot as a kid. I had heard about, you know, of course, they call it a riot back then and not a massacre. I had heard about that and read more about it about 20 years ago. But I didn't learn about it until two or three years ago. Just across the river down south here was a city named Elaine, Arkansas and may have been the most fatalities, African-American fatalities in a, a massacre in America. As many as 250 are supposed it happened in 1919, in which uh, African-American cotton sharecroppers were trying to organize the local sheriff, and they started passing around tracks saying there was going to be a massacre by the African-Americans on the whites to kill all the landowners. And so rounded up a, a posse and just went and laid waste to the, the black wow. community. I, I don't know about that story. There was that other 1919 riot that happened up north. Maybe that's maybe that got lost in the, you know, maybe it just took precedence over that story. But yeah, I'm sure there's others. There probably wasn't any sympathetic coverage in the South no, at that time. No. 
No, I think it's real. But I think in out of all that we've been going through as a country and, you know, this people say it's this rise and racist rhetoric that's coming up with, you know, Charlottesville and everything. I do think it's a really good opportunity for us, though, because 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, people were not ready or willing to have this conversation or even to open their eyes to that possibility. So now we have people of all different races that are really concerned and that really do want change. And they do want to put America on blast for living up to its promise. And had Hillary won, I don't think we'd be having these conversations in the same way. We wouldn't, but there would still be a lot of racist rhetoric flying around. Oh, there always has been. But I think the reality that now people are unleashed to do it and there seems to be permission to do it, I think, is its own special blessing because then we can really see it. It's like the South, right? It's like the signs. I mean, really. It's nice to see an all lives matter sign because you can say, wow, I'm not going to that store anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, say what you mean. (laughs) You see the the black and white flag with the blue stripe, you just keep on going. Right. It's like, just be clear. So I know the deal. Surprised that you saw more Confederate flags in New York, upstate New York, than you did down in the South. Yeah, I was talking to Ron, my stepdad, that morning, driving through upstate New York. Charlottesville had just happened. He was like, oh, you know, I'm not surprised. And I wasn't surprised either because I'd seen about six Confederate flags that morning and saw more that afternoon and then realized, you know, when I drove through the whole state of South Carolina, I saw fewer in South Carolina than I did in upstate New York. So to so many of my, especially, you know, my well-meaning white liberal friends, you know, calling me in tears, saying, you know, I can't believe this is happening and, you know, they're going to round up all the Muslims and, you know, and and I said, why are you crying? And they're like, they're just going to, you know, they're round up all the Mexicans and it's just horrible. And, you know, they're separating their children from the border. And and a part of me gets really sad because I think, you know, they have been rounding up black people for the last 50 years. Nobody's called me in tears. Nobody's called me concerned. Nobody's said anything. Black children have been separated from their families in violent, horrible ways in a lot of these encounters with the police. Either they come in, they'll shoot the dog, that kind of trauma, I can't imagine, you know, threaten or shoot one of the parents. I mean, all the violence that happens in these encounters that children are witness to and then forced into the foster care system, which entails even further trauma, has been happening to my community for decades, generations now. And going back to the the Indian schools, taking Native American children away from their families. Yeah, and the Japanese internments. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, we have done good things in America. I don't want to say, you know, it's been all bad. But the fact that we come out of this history saying we're just this beacon on a hill where we've just had this pristine, you know, we're going to open our arms and say, you know, there's freedom for all. We don't get to do that yet. And I think it's still an experiment. It's a young country. The idea that we're entitled to democracy or freedom or entitled to, you know, fairness and equality I think it's a great idea, and I love that idea, and I want to support that mission. But we have fallen way short of it, and we need to admit that so that we can fix it, so that we can move towards, you know, the ideal that we say we we want to be. I mean, the American dream is kind of a Potemkin village in its own right. <laughs> it's, it's laughable almost, you know. Now, let's get back to the Green Book. <laughs> <laughs> because so many – White-owned hotels and pensions and such wouldn't allow African-Americans to stay. The Green Book was kind of almost the Airbnb of its time. It was. I mean, the Green Book, there's a chapter I write on women in the Green Book. There were about 1,400 tourist homes. And tourist homes were just basically like the first Airbnbs, like you said, they were mostly run by women. They were always, you know, Mrs. Baxter. So, you know, there was always a Mrs. in the uh, the title of the the establishment, or they were run by either married women or widowed women. And it was a great place where you could usually get a warm meal and a safe bed. But it was difficult to know. I don't know how people, because there was no phone number, you just have to show up and hope that there was, you know, enough beds available. 
But there were little communities that formed out of these tourist homes. And they were really special because, especially for people who were leaving the South at that time, using the Green Book, especially if they were migrants, they had been farmers or sharecroppers, and they were traveling north and they didn't have a lot of money, that was a really great option because they were generally about a dollar to go to a tourist home. Because you had to be pretty middle class to have a car, you know, first of all, and then have the money to go on vacation and food and lodging. And then there were all these nightclubs and fun things to do in the Green Book. So, you know, it really did serve all classes because the tourist homes were really great for people who didn't have the means. We had Isabel Wilkerson on several years ago when mm, Warmth of Other Suns came out. Mm. And, of course, in reading that, learned that the Great Migration many times was an escape in the fact that white landowners would not allow their sharecroppers to leave. I learned that from her book. I mean, there's a major Economic source. Incentive. Yeah, there's a major source of income for, for them, and they're not going to let it go, that labor force. So – it was real. And I think that's, you know, especially with the trains, there's a, in my book, there's two chapters that really focus on, one is on the migration, it's called a license to leave. And the other one was about trains, because the Green Book had a couple of editions that were just dedicated to the train, and the reality of what train travel was like, especially if you were leaving the South, because as Wilkerson says, you know, they would just literally wait until people gathered on the platform, the train platform, and turn them away so they couldn't get on the train. Because they, they were escaping. And the idea that, you know, in history class, I always learned that black people just left the South because there were better opportunities in the North. But you never learned that they were most, in most cases, fleeing racial terror. You know, I didn't learn until I was writing this book that Ron told me a story about his cousin being, you know, chased out of town by the Ku Klux Klan. I didn't know about that. You know, there were so many real threats that black people were running from. It wasn't just that they wanted better work. I mean, a lot of people want better jobs, but the effort it takes, especially when you have fewer means or especially during that time to leave, it took a lot. And so there had to be a major force pushing them. And so, you know, when you look at the way the trains were segregated and the train experience, if you were black sitting you know, in the front, your clothes were covered in soot. It was a very different experience than when you see these people traveling in luxury because it was a glorious time for train travel. But there was an ally or several allies on each train because of the Pullman porters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Pullman porters were a great part of our story. And I mean, also, you know, the Chicago Defender and there were all these really great publications that were helping folks leave the South to head north. The Pullman porters helped distribute that information. And they were icons, you know, of just that distinguished icon of train travel. But again, I think that, you know, and thankfully, people like A. Philip Randolph, you know, really fought for their rights. And there's a little bit about that in the book, in terms of the unions to make sure that they were treated better. But you could have a very different experience if you were from New York, and you were just taking a train to LA, if you never crossed into the South. You know, you could really live in an altered state and think that, oh, it's just glorious and it's okay. But for those, yeah, who were crossing that Mason-Dixon line, it was a whole different story. The Mason-Dixon line isn't just the South. There were, you know, quite a few slaveholding states that didn't secede. Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky. Yeah. Didn't have to go that far (laughs) south. (laughs) Exactly. St. Louis was very segregated. And so you had to make sure you're train went through Chicago and then north and through Iowa and not dip down into St. Louis. It's a lot of work. And again, sometimes you just wouldn't know. Ferguson was a sundown town, which I was surprised to, to learn. Missouri in particular, the Ozarks were real. And Victor Green actually puts a whole page ad in one of his green books basically saying, if you're from Missouri, read this. Because there were certain states, North Dakota was another state where you see Victor Green reaching out to business owners there. You can tell he's trying to get businesses to participate and they won't. And so he publishes a series of letters, responses to his inquiries, basically explaining why they can't be part of the Green Book. And it's very uh, telling and 
kind of sad and laughable at the same time because you know like well there's just not very many black people up here negroes up here and you know there's a peculiar kind of prejudice or you know we we still see the negro as a curiosity and so it probably wouldn't be a good idea you know or they say you know we don't want to alienate our white customers so there were all these attempts that green was going through to get people cuz he knew there were these gaps where once you got into the middle of the country it was really not good for black folks and and then the green book changes by the 60s because victor green has passed at that point and after brown versus board of education in 1954 the country's realizing that you know integration is going to happen for those who want it or for those who don't it's just it's kind of a train that's just going to happen so there was i think more the white owned businesses that probably always either wanted more business is more business. Some people just thought, you know, money is green. I don't care about color. Others, you know, people, there were these really big musicians, Sammy Davis Jr., all these people traveling that, you know, could no longer stay. They thought they wanted to put an end to that. So you see a lot more of the high-end businesses participating in the Green Book, like Bel Air Hotel or the Drake or the Waldorf Astoria or the Algonquin Brooks Brothers and Macy's was in the Green Book in some of those later editions. The earlier editions have everything from liquor stores to drug stores to haberdashers and tailors and sanitariums and doctors and barbers and hairstylists and all kinds of businesses, which was really just a testament to how many facets of American society black people were shut out of. But in the later editions, you really do see that the Green Book changes because the country is changing. And unfortunately, civil rights, meaning so much, also exposed a lot of black-owned businesses to the economy of scale. And when you've got a big corporation that can easily outspend you and take a loss where you can't, it's built a lot of trouble for black-owned businesses. It did. It was the beginning of the end of a lot of these, you know, Towards the end of my book, I have a chapter called The um, Double-Edged Sword of Integration because once black people could leave, you know, once – redlining was still alive and well, but there were more openings in different neighborhoods. Or they could go to the French Quarter where black people were never really allowed to frequent. So as soon as they could go to the French Quarter, they stopped going to like the Dew Drop, which was a great nightclub iconic in every way. It's not operating, but it's still around and we're trying to reopen it. I've interviewed the grandson. His grandfather used to run it. But my stepfather, Ron, said integration was the worst thing that happened to us as black folks. And I think in some ways, I understand exactly what he means because so many of those black-owned businesses lost business. These places became abandoned and literally If you look at even what happened to the Lorraine Motel, which was a Green Book site here in Memphis, now, of course, it's a beautiful National Civil Rights Museum, but it really went through a really bad period. It became a brothel and was just really lost its shine. And now it's been rehabbed and repurposed into something really important. But that's what happened to most of the Green Book sites is that they just had this really sad downfall and just because of neglect and abandonment. One of the major American corporations that didn't seem to be nearly as racist as the others was Esso and John yeah. D. Rockefeller's oil operation. And I was surprised that he and his wife had a, a hand in helping out Spelman College. Right. Esso was a big part of the story. And Esso is ExxonMobil today, actually. They were on the right side of history for sure. Esso distributed the Green Book. They hired two black marketing executives to actually study the Negro market. And those marketing executives, James A. Jackson and Wendell P. Alston, actually used the Green Book a lot and helped spread the word. There were about nearly a dozen other black traveler guides from the 30s to the 70s. And I think the Green Book was so successful and outlasted and outsold all of them because of Esso. Because you could go to an Esso station and find a Green Book And Esso had a great reputation in the black community. Even if you didn't have a green book, most black people knew they could go to Esso. So that was really important. And I wondered, well, why was Esso so kind to black people? When I found out about Laura Spellman, because Rockefeller, who ran Standard Oil, 
was married to this woman, Laura Spellman, and she grew up in a house on the Underground Railroad in Cleveland. Her parents were fierce abolitionists, and I think she was the conscience of Mr. Rockefeller. And as a result, SO hired black men in every stage of the business. There were black chemists at SO. They were hired to franchise their own gas stations at a time when most other brands would barely even sell gas to black people. So again, they were on the right side of history. And then you find that, yeah, Spelman College was named after Laura Spelman. So thank God. With the the history of Oberlin College and the Underground Railroad and this, it's really disappointing to see how Ohio is now. You know, I'm from Ohio. I'm from Columbus originally. And I think in some ways it's just really more indicative of where we are as a country. I think there's all these pockets where, again, we made progress and where we fell back. But, you know, I think every state, I think, has its own dirty laundry and tragedy and, you know, things to deal with. And I think it's pretty consistent. Yeah, I've seen some bad, I mean, maybe Hawaii has less, you know, in oh, terms they've, of... They've got the history of the racism against the, the native Hawaiians there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But in terms of in terms of black history and black travel, and, and the Green Book actually went, you know, it was an international guide. There, it was listed in 30 countries in Africa, and it was all throughout Europe. And so this idea that if you left the shores, you know, you may be treated better in Europe as a black person. And largely, that was mostly true. So, you know, again, I think, you know, in the lower 48, there were green book sites actually in Alaska as well. But it was always a risk to travel. Now, a few years ago, you probably heard there was a movie project called Green Book <laughs> in development. Did that give you hope or did it scare you? I saw the trailer and I knew right away it really didn't have anything to do with the Green Book. I think if anything, that movie was just shouldn't have been called that. I think it was just mistitled. I'm supposedly on the DVD explaining what the Green Book is. Universal Studios came and interviewed me. They wouldn't show me the film because it hadn't been released yet. But they said after the test screening, pretty much the first question everybody had was, what, what is a Green Book? And it's only mentioned a few times, really, in the film. I think it was just a real disservice to the Green Book, the real Green Book, because it was so many other things. It was so many things. You know, when they're in Birmingham, Alabama in 1962, supposedly, and they take Dr. Shirley to this hotel where he's very uncomfortable. You know, he's a man of means. He's not used to being in, you know, those kinds of conditions. And he's scared and, you know, not comfortable. If the filmmakers had done their homework, it was easy. I mean, there were plenty of us to talk to who were doing Green Book projects. They could have come to us. I mean, because they would have taken Dr. Shirley to the A.G. Gaston, which was a really beautiful hotel where King stayed in Birmingham. And it was the place where the locals loved. I mean, it was a really special place. It's an iconic place. It's actually still around. It's not operating, but we're saving it. The National Trust is working on a project to save that history. And that's where he would have gone. So I think, you know, to me, the film was a real disservice to the Green Book because it just projected this stereotype of like, oh, that's what was left over for black folks. Like, the Green Book sites were just these, you know, dirty places where most white people wouldn't stay if they had the choice. And and that's simply not true. The Green Book had all kinds of places in it. So I thought it was it was unfortunate because so many Americans – it made the Green Book actually a household name, which is good. But I think it also took away our opportunity as black people to tell our story because we're just getting our hands around the Green Book. It's still new to us in so many ways, relatively. So it's unfortunate. Because the Green Book shouldn't just be seen as like a chronicle of white supremacy and its effect on travel. It should show how African-Americans persevered and had wonderful experiences with the help of this book because they're able to do so. Exactly. I mean, it's like we were fabulous in so many ways. I mean, just the courage it took, obviously, to just even do it, to get out there and take a trip. But then, yeah, to go to these like really beautiful, the Hampton House, I and mean, it was like one of the most it was a gorgeous nightclub and inside and 
It's a really prestigious hotel, and it's where King tried out his I Have a Dream speech. I mean, there's so many iconic things that happened, or even the Ben Moore Hotel in Montgomery, Alabama, where King strategized the Montgomery bus boycott. There were so many things. Idlewild and Oak Bluffs. Idlewild, yeah, where people were just like doing their best on the, the beach and having a good time. And there was Murray's Dude Ranch. It was incredible. This Dude Ranch was in the Green Book in the Mojave Desert, and was 40 acres and people just rode horses and Joe Lewis and his entourage would show up and Pearl Bailey bought it in the 60s and she'd drive her pink Cadillac on the dirt roads. I mean, there's so many great things that we just, that we did anyway, in spite of sundown towns and all the other forces that were trying to drag us down. The fact that we did it beautifully and, and showed our elegance as a race, you know, it's really something to be proud of. And I'm working on an exhibition with the uh, Smithsonian to – I'm a curator and the content specialist. And they're using my book as the um, the companion guide to this exhibition. It will travel for three years throughout the United States. And it will open in the National Civil Rights Museum here in Memphis in June. June 14th is the first day it's open to the public of this year. You know, and then it will go to the um, – Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati, but it will travel. And, you know, again, we're going to show those those experiences, those really glorious moments where black folks shined and stepped out in their best. And it will also, you know, show the realities of what it was like, good and bad. But yeah, I think that's also a story that never really gets told. It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate, but is there perhaps another book idea that you're looking to work on? Well, my book, Overground Railroad, will be a children's book coming out in 2021, and it'll be for ages 9 to 12. So we're working on that. And as I said, I'm doing this project with National Geographic, the digital interactive map. I'm designing a board game. So that's underway. I mean, it's so crazy because even though the book is done, there's still so much about this history that I'm still mining. And so I imagine there will just be more products and other, you know, material that's coming out of this research because the book can only hold so much. I have thousands of files, you know, research over these years of doing the work. So I think there's still more stories to tell with this project. You know, writing this book was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And um, I did tell my agent after I finished it, I was like, I'm not writing any more books. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, there's got to be a better way to make a living. Like, we could do we can do other things. And she's like, well, you know, I mean, I, I've said this before. I wasn't going to write any more books. But it is the hardest thing I do. And this book in particular, because when I first wrote my proposal, it was not this book for this project. There were, like, themed chapters on different types of green book sites and you know, and I and I sold it to Abrams. We were really happy with it, you know, and I had a fellowship at the Schomburg in New York, and then I went to Harvard, and then I went on the road for at least it was about six months that I lived out of hotels. And had I just stayed at Harvard, this would have been a very different book. But once I went on the road and I saw these communities and, you know, 53 people being shot in one weekend in Chicago and looking at Skid Row and, and Los Angeles, I was like, I cannot write something that's just a historic travel guide. Like, there's so much more to tell here. So when I got off the road, I wrote to Abrams, and I said, you know, let me just rewrite the proposal, because now it's a different project. And if you don't like it, we can go back to the original one. That's fine. But once I started the book out with Ron, because my stepfather died literally the week I started writing the book. And when I was grieving his death was when I was writing all his stories that he told me on the road. And I just told my agent, I was like, I know I'm supposed to be writing the book, but all I can write are Ron's stories. And I would just sit there and cry every morning with the sun coming up. And I'd just be writing Ron's stories so I wouldn't forget them. And by the end of that two weeks, I said, you know, I think I'm going to open the book with Ron in the backseat of the car. And then I realized his stories were a touchstone in almost every chapter. So having Ron's stories is kind of a narrative thread. Having my journey doing this field research is a narrative thread. Having obviously the green books, I'm looking at them chronologically, looking at history and that 
pendulum of justice when things move forward. When they So there were like these four layers I was constantly having to navigate in writing the book. So it became a much harder book to write. And I had to do it in eight months. And when I was done, I mean, of course, I had editors and everybody looking over this. But when I was done, I was like, I don't even know if this thing makes sense. Like, I was so... Inside it. Yeah. And then I just had no real distance from it to even... I just knew it was done. And I was like, thank God I'm still standing and it's done. And that's all I could do. But now that it has been out, you know, for a month and people really like it and they get it, you know, that's a real huge blessing because honestly, I was like, I guess I I know I did my best, but I really don't know if it's good. <laughs> you know, even though people, my editors are like, we love it. It's great. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm really hard on myself. But so that's all to say, you know, I can't say whether or not I'm going to write another book, but I think I have so much work right now with all these different products in place and the exhibition. And I'm really going to try to just ride this now and see where it leads. Well, Candace, I want to thank you for spending a little time with us out of your really busy schedule. Appreciate it. It was a wonderful book. We mm. we can tell you that it's a good book <laughs> and that we you. love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was really honored to be interviewed by you. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> now you're going to make me blush. <laughs> Candace Taylor is the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America, which is published by Abrams Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.